Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're observing President's Day by honoring the richness of our national heritage with its diverse influences. Being American is a podcast hosted by former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. Later in the hour, we'll hear about how he explores the meaning of American identity with various artists, politicians, and everyday heroes of all backgrounds. First, it's time for us to check in with director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theatre Company. He has curated a series for us called Culture Crash with the recent election, inauguration, and now President's Day. Our topic today is patriotic songs. Adam, welcome back to City Lights. Lois, it's great to be here. Thank you. And I see that the first example you've chosen has several influences that make up the song. God Bless America was written in 1918 by a poverty-stricken Russian Jewish immigrant, Irving Berlin. Please tell us more. So in Berlin as we've discussed before on your show, Lois is one of the most important songwriters in popular American song. He had a huge, huge influence on everything that came after him. He showed up here in the country in total abject poverty. One of eight siblings came from Russia or what is now Belarus. And upon arrival, his family lived in the tenements. His only memory from Russia is watching his house burn down. But he lit out on his own at age 14. By the early teens, he had written enough hits to become pretty wealthy from that era. And by the time World War I rolled around, he was enlisted, but already a famous songwriter. So during World War I, he was able to write reviews for the army and become a way that the army used him to help build morale, raise money, raise awareness, that sort of a thing. And, and famously, he wrote a lot of the 
tunes that we associate, the kind of, oh, how I hate to wake up in the morning, his song about Reveille, and it is dates from that era. And so he was writing a review for American troops that was going to go, and the idea was a lot of the characters were servicemen. And uh, this review was uh, funny songs. It was a, a, they were going to take it on tour in, in Europe. And he wrote this song with the idea that a bunch of troops would sing it. And then he kind of reviewed it and it, he felt that the tune was quite solemn. The structure of it being somewhat like a prayer was very earnest. And he just couldn't see a bunch of troops singing it uh, at the time. So he put it in, in a shelf and he kind of forgot about it, never made the review. And it cut to 1940, the world is on the, uh, the world is already in a world war and America is gonna get involved pretty shortly. And he felt like he wanted to write, he knew we were headed towards war, but he wanted to write a song that evoked all of our hopes for peace. And that's the con. So he first he thought, well, I'll write a new song. And then he remembered that he had this tune and had his staff at that point. You know, he was a, a very established and famous guy. And he had his staff fish through his archives and they finally found this. And he dusted it off, changed a few of the verses, gave it to a popular interpreter of the day, Kate Smith. And it became a huge, huge hit and then became something that generations of people have sung at schools, at rallies, on TV, before games. It's become part of our national language. Let's listen to some of it. Who will we hear? I thought it'd be fun to hear from the man himself. So this is Irving Berlin himself singing God Bless America. America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mountains to the prairies to the old. White with foam God bless America My home Sweet home Adam, what crash of influences come together in a good way in this music? Well, as I mentioned, it's kind of in the form of a, a prayer. It's very much a popular American song. So it follows a pretty predictable structure, but within Irving Berlin's oeuvre in general, and even in this song, you can hear a couple of things coming together. He came from a cantorial tradition. In other words, his father was a Jewish cantor, the person with singing religious and liturgical tropes in the synagogue. Though his father died young, that was the tradition from which he came. And when he landed in America, 
jazz and ragtime were on the rise and he was hanging out in saloons and bars and absorbing that sound. And of course, you would also hear people singing operetta, the popular songs of Europe. And he took all of these influences as did a lot of his peers and they, they each sort of spit out a variation of that with all of these influences coming together to create something at the time that was uniquely American. And so I think the crash I wanna look at is this idea that we sing this song as a prayer as if it's the most American of song, it's as American as apple pie. And it represents America going all the way back, but it's very important to recognize that the songwriter himself was an immigrant. He blended traditions from his old world and stuff that he was seeing in the new, you know, in the new and spitting it out with this thing that becomes part of our American language, but it's not as if it has a terroir going back to, you know, 1600. It's, it's, it's a new phenomenon from this melding of culture. Although you could argue that with the influence of ragtime and jazz that he absorbed and used in his own work, it can be traced back to African influences. Oh, without question, without question. So much of popular American music that Berlin was absorbing came from, at the time, the things that were seen as authentically American music came from the South. The South, and the reason for that was that's where the biggest population of African Americans lived. And the music that came out of the African American community was perceived as kind of the most authentically American and so much of the influence there from r the rhythmic language to the melodic structure to the way syncopation is used. Uh, a lot of that's African diaspora influence. Yeah. How does God Bless America relate to our next example? Well, in, um, in the 1940s, once... Um, God Bless America was launched by Kate Smith, it immediately was ubiquitous. It got a huge amount of airplay. It was a big hit. So much so that when the folk songwriter from Oklahoma, Woody Guthrie, heard it on the radio all the time, it started to drive him batty. He thought he, he was very aggravated to just, I, I think he might've been able to handle it if he had heard it once, but you know, you gotta put yourself back into the 1940s and imagine turning on the radio and that's kind of all you hear. And he also thought the tone was so earnest and solemn and evoked a kind of America that he wanted to a little bit protest and rail against. He wrote a response to it that was you know, one step in parody, one step reaction, and it itself became a classic. He wrote, this land is your land, actually in response to God Bless America. Now, Woody Guthrie was born in 1912 in Okima, Oklahoma, and his father was successful early, and then 
he had a bunch of personal tragedies. His wife was institutionalized, the, their house burned down, they lost their fortune. So Woody Guthrie had the experience both of being financially secure and then adrift early in his life. He lit out for California as a young man and became a kind of a balladeer as he went to California. And he grew up listening to traditional English and Scottish ballads. He had church hymns on his mind, but also he grew up around the Black community in Oklahoma. And so was he learned the blues harmonica pretty early, and that became part of what American folk music meant to him. So all of these different cultural influences were at play as Woody Guthrie is writing This Land is Your Land. One thing that I think is was a complete surprise to me. I mean, I grew up singing this song at summer camp and at school, It's yeah, I think as a lot of people do. I had no idea that, first of all, that Woody Guthrie was so consistently a protest singer. And secondly, that this song in particular is really about an unequal distribution of wealth, especially when he wrote it. But we've kind of gone back and found even earlier recordings and earlier lyrics that are even more explicitly about the income inequality that he was responding to. He, he has lyrics like, one bright Sunday morning in the shadow of the steeple by the relief office, I saw my people as they stood hungry. I stood there wondering if God blessed America for me. Uh, there's another lyric was on a high wall there that tried to stop me. A sign said, was painted, said private property, but on the backside, it don't say nothing. God blessed America for me. So you can see it as originally conceived, it was a protest song. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island and the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. As I went a walk in that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. Saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. So in the lyrics I'm looking at, God blessed America for me is struck through. And in brackets, I see this land was made for you and me. A producer in the 19, mid-1940s, when looking over Guthrie's songs, thought that the song would be a little bit more popular and palatable with some of this stuff out. And, and I think Guthrie agreed, and so they put it out without some of these. But in recent days, they've Guthrie's such a huge figure, there's been a lot of unearthing of different parts of his history and different things that he said. And so we're a little more aware of what the original song was about. And we've even found early recordings where these lyrics are in it. Um, so it, it, this isn't the legacy of the song, this protest vibe because of that mid 1940s recording, but it's in the DNA of the song, if that makes sense. Absolutely. 
I also, um, in going back and, and looking at where the song came from, found it very interesting that really the majority of the tune was lifted from a gospel recording. Well, I should say a country flavored recording of a gospel tune that the Carter family had recorded. So there's this evidently brilliant lyricist, also a very talented musician, but in that time, and you know, Woody Guthrie was not massively concerned about intellectual property. He sort of thought tunes existed and if you could use them for your own ends, fantastic. And so he heard this church tune and then adapted it for himself and put lyrics to it. Wow, yeah, this tune is your tune. It belongs to all of us. <laughs> it was made for you and me. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company. We'll be back with more of Culture Crash, patriotic music, after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're back with the artistic director of Flying Carpet Theater, Adam Copeland, discussing patriotic music as part of our Culture Crash series. Here, Adam tells an interesting story about one of the most important contributors to American folk music. Woody Guthrie lived in some buildings in the, near Coney Island in Brooklyn in the 40s that had been developed by Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump. And he had ongoing angry feelings towards Fred Trump. The uh, place that he lived in, the promise was that for in his mind, in, in Guthrie's mind, that it was public housing and that it was going to be a little bit more utopian, integrated. And Guthrie was dismayed that the, the buildings remained lily white. And he also had a negative feeling about how the landlords treated the tenants. And as a result, you can find several songs, at least two, that refer negatively to old man Trump as being an evil landlord. Uh, I don't think either were recorded by Guthrie, but in subsequent, you know, as I was mentioning, as there's been all this Guthrie interest over the years, they've been recorded and re-recorded by others. So I guess he uh, has been 
The American protest movement has been protesting members of the Trump family for many, many years. this very inclusive music of Woody Guthrie. And we have the prayer-like sort of innocent patriotism of Irving Berlin. How do patriotic songs land now? Most of us receive American patriotic songs as if they were these timeless chestnuts passed down through the generations. I mean, certainly that's how I received God Bless America and This Land is Your Land. And speaking personally, I think we rarely think about their origins. I'm struck that the songs that often conform to whatever listener's version of patriotism is, which, you know, we all have different versions of patriotism. And it can be, as we've seen, especially with Guthrie, it can be quite far from the artist's intent. Today, you know, as we look at the songs we're listening to, I, I think in some way they all reflect this melting pot that is America and the culture crash that we're talking about. One thing that's especially struck me lately is that the way songs get used often feels very from author's intent. Uh, of longstanding, I've been struck by the way that God Bless America has trotted out at events and rallies where there's kind of a white Anglo-centric vision of America. And so, you know, I think Irving Berlin, the immigrant would look at that vision of America as God Bless America as being sung so proudly and kind of think, you know, that's not the America that I see in my mind's eye. And would you believe while watching TV a few weeks ago, they were doing a bit on a Make America Great Again rally. And they, they showed the parking lot where people were having a tailgating party before the rally. And as they were, as somebody was speaking, you could hear blasting from one of the cars, the next song that we're listening to, which was Living in America, James Brown's Living in America. And on one hand, it sort of makes sense. It's a, such a festive song. It's such a patriotic song. It is celebrating and giving a party feeling to living in America. So you could imagine that in, at a political rally, playing that song makes a ton of sense. But I also think that it's, it's pretty counter to just about everything James Brown stood for oh, in his life. I would definitely agree with that. And yet, in contrast to Woody Guthrie's 
country sound, fast forwarding 40 years and hearing this take on America by James Brown, it's very hopeful. It's very optimistic and kind of surprises me. was nothing if not a paradox. He is such an amazing figure. I, I should start by saying James Brown has a huge footprint in my own life because for, for many years, he was iconically my father's, one of my father's favorite, if not my father's favorite musician. So I grew up, you know, sort of at the altar of James As I've come to learn, he, he was such a musical trailblazer. He grew up in, um, again, in very poor circumstances, born in South Carolina, quickly moved to Augusta here in our state, went to church, had a musical talent early. His father got him an organ, which he quickly learned to play. He got a guitar, which he learned to play around on and had clear and early musical talent. And the influences he had as a young man included gospel. What was popular in the day was called soul. And he started to absorb that. But before you know, soul was launched, Boogie Woogie was popular. And he, he said Louis Jordan was a huge influence on him. So then he he starts to sort of develop his own thing. And one of the things, I'm gonna read a quick quote from a music scholar that kind of puts into perspective this revolution that James Brown led. He would sing semi-improvised, loosely organized melodies that wandered while the band riffed rhythmically on a single chord, the horns punctuating Brown's declamatory phrases. With no chord changes and precious little melodic variety to sustain their interest, rhythm became everything. Brown and his musicians and arrangers began to treat every instrument and voice in the group as if it were a drum. The horns played single note bursts that were often sprung against the downbeats. The bass lines were broken into choppy two or three note patterns. And this is a procedure coming uh, from Latin music in the 1940s and unusual in R&B. Brown's rhythm guitarist choked his guitar strings against the instrument's neck so hard that his playing began to sound like a jagged tin can being scraped with a pocket knife. All of this to say, Lois, that Brown starts to move away from melody and create this dense rhythmic language that became this huge footprint for musicians for the rest of the century. It, it leads, his version of soul leads to 
Sly and the Family Stone, Bootsy Collins, Maceo Parker, and, you know, becomes George Clinton's funk and Prince's, Prince's funky rock. It's even, you can even hear James Brown in the, the white band, the Talking Heads. His, his footprint on American pop music is huge. And a lot of it has to do with this emphasis on rhythm. And so much of his influence comes through the black church and through Boogie Woogie and Soul. And so much of that influence is, again, we talked earlier about African diaspora influence. So virtuoso rhythm is, is, has played a bigger role in traditional African music and then into the African diaspora. The call and response that is a hallmark of James Brown's style, the spoken passages, the broken repetitive phrases, again, all of these are things scholars say are hallmarks of elements of Black music in America that came, that were influenced by that African diaspora. Oh, and it, it is just breathtaking. We recently watched the film One Night in Miami, which I cannot recommend highly enough. It was superb. And one of the characters was the real-life soul singer, Sam Cooke. There's a scene where he's about to go on sort of a famous moment in his career, and the sound system blew out. He was without a microphone. The crowd was antsy, and he leads them in first imitating his rhythmic illustration of the underpinning of Chain Gang. And it's this gorgeous example on film of just a little bit of what you are trying to convey about how James Brown transformed music, transformed soul music. Oh, I agree. You know, I'm glad you bring up Sam Cooke. I think of uh, the spectrum within soul for everybody in soul rhythm is important. The spectrum in soul, I think Sam Cooke is also so beautifully melodic. His melodic line is so gorgeous, the quality of his voice. You know, everybody who could picture James Brown, it's more of the shrieking, the calling, the dunk, 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 you know, that kind of, and and both are, are pillars of soul music in different ways. I think one thing that binds them if I may read a quote from a music critic, Lillian Roxon, she talks about what is soul. And she says, you can't define it, but you either have it or you don't. <laughs> Live through enough if pain has been your constant companion and despair has seeped into your heart, lungs, and guts so that no matter what good times come later, they're always colored by that extra dimension of sorrow. It's so much a part of you that you can't sing or play without it coming through. Then you may start to understand what goes into a performance by Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, or Otis Redding. And we can add to that, obviously, Sam Cooke and James Brown. And I, we've talked about the culture crash is both the strains that come before, but it's also the unique experiences groups and communities have in the U.S., and certainly the Black community has had a very specific experience dealing with oppressive racism that has so colored the music that has come from 
black artists. And I, I think that you can't, that that's part of our culture crash conversation is the circumstances that bleed into how people understand the kind of art they want to make. It came to mind as I was listening to our link to Living in America, arranged and interpreted by James Brown, because it is joyous in its sound. Maybe because of events of the past 10 months, I was wondering how this song lands now. Well, I don't know that I can speak to how timely or not living in America is right now. Instead, I'll say that James Brown as an artist has multiple touch points in his career that show a complicated relationship to how he thought about America in the late 1960s. He started in an era and at a time when the music he made was overtly called race music. And the radio stations that he was played on were considered black radio stations. And it was sort of understood that most music was segregated. And by the late 1960s, he was a crossover hit. And he still chose to put out a song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And his, his team, you know, the, the, the labels were saying, James, you know, this, this is going to put you in hot water. This is not the time to do it. And he did it absolutely with total conviction that he had to. people in America and sort of speaking his truth. Also, um, you know, at various points, he's a complicated guy. He had a relationship with Strom Thurmond. He, there's multiple times you'll find James Brown in, in very complicated political and personal relationships. You know, he, he was in, in jail. I think it's hard to make generalizations about a kind of perfect vision of James Brown's sort of a unified political sense that James Brown had. But at core, James Brown had suffered. And at core, James Brown was speaking largely to Black audiences about the Black experiences. And in, a, in an interview he has around this song, he says, despite it all, I do thank God that I've been able to and he's kind of funny about it that I've been able to jump around, shake and scream and holler and have people come and love it. And I think that's a blessing. And I'm blessed to be in America to where I can do that and make a living. So, you know, like I said, he's a complicated guy, but he he had a festive sense 
and his concerts were parties. Director Adam Copeland is the artistic director of Flying Carpet Theatre Company. Patriotic music is the second part of our Culture Crash series. You can find the list of songs and more information about the ongoing series on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Being American is a podcast hosted by former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. He launched the series last fall to address the meaning of American identity in 2020. And his conversations continue this year with various artists, politicians, and everyday heroes of all backgrounds. I spoke with Governor Patrick via Zoom in December and asked why he wanted to create Being American. Well, it seems to me that in these divided and divisive times, there are conversations uh, about common values that are enormously difficult to have in a campaign and, um, and harder and harder to have in politics, sadly. But there is so much uncommon wisdom I've found out and about, not just from the famous, but the as yet discovered. Many folks doing, you know, as my grandmother would say, all the good they can in all the ways they can with all the time they have. And they have insights, I think, into where we are as a country and where we're going and how we can begin, I think, over time to see how much of what uh, ails us from community to community and individual to individual is in common. And if that's so, some of the solutions that we have to think about, I think, um, can also be thought about as unifying themselves. Yeah. Many of your political colleagues have pivoted to doing podcasts. Former First Lady Michelle Obama, David Axelrod, just to name two. I was wondering if you spoke with any friends or colleagues before you embarked on being American. I did, in particular to David Axelrod, who, unlike me, has gotten the hang of doing uh, podcasts. I'm still trying to find my... uh, Radio voice, I guess. In fact, I I said to the producer, if you can dub in the voice of James Earl Jones, (laughs) that'll do it. But yeah, I I think, you know, I was I I was reluctant to come to the idea of a of a podcast. There's such a wealth of content out there and and people are getting their information and their commentary in lots of different ways from lots of different um, voices. And there's a lot to like about that. So I wondered whether a conversation that seemed as abstract as this one would be um, of interest to people. Some of our guests have just been fascinating, and I've learned a ton, and, and I have left feeling with a lot to, that I had a lot to think about and a lot to hope for. Well, you're a wonderful listener, which is always the mark of a great interviewer. It's nice of you to say. Ours is 
an arts and culture show, and I was especially impressed not only with the artists you have featured, such as Misty Copeland and Herbie Hancock, but also your deep personal involvement with the arts. Before engaging with your podcast series, I listened back to the eulogy you gave at Ted Kennedy's memorial, which had everyone laughing, and revealed your arts enthusiasm, one the late senator shared. Would you tell that story you told? Oh, gracious. You mean about how he crashed our our, our lunch? Yes. <laughs> I hadn't been in office long um, as governor, and I had run for nothing else before. But I had met Ted Kennedy years before when I was uh, nominated by Bill Clinton to head the Civil Rights Division. And I admired him and admired his, his politics really from a long time, you know, as Democrats often do and have. We got to be more personal friends on the journey to my own election, he gave me a lot of time and, uh, and he stayed out of it um, as he advises all Democratic elected officials uh, to do in a contested Democratic uh, primary. Some really great advice, which I have followed half the time, I think. But he's, he's a wonderful storyteller and he's fun and interesting. He's, he was so curious about people, as is his widow. And he and I and Diane and Vicky had spent time together. And, and we have a place in Western Massachusetts, not far from where, from Tanglewood, which is the summer home of the Boston Symphony and the Boston Pops. And he was coming out for a concert and we uh, invited him and Vicky to come for lunch after the concert. And they said, well, why don't you come and sit with us at the concert? So we did. And then he, he, call, he called a couple of, I don't know, maybe three or four days before and said, would you mind if I invited two guest artists, two Broadway icons to join us for lunch at your home. And I said, sure, that would be terrific. And I think he added somebody else before the time was. Anyway, we get home to lunch and we're sitting down. All of a sudden, this total stranger comes in with a, an electric keyboard and starts <laughs> to set up. And, uh, and we all said, what's going on? And it turns out this was the principal pianist from the symphony whom uh, Ted Kennedy had invited to come and play so that we could all sing Broadway tunes after lunch. And so we did all afternoon. We had a wonderful time. But it, but Vicky was mortified uh, that he would just keep inviting people over to our home without uh, first asking us. <laughs> it sounded like something out of the movie, You Can't Take It With You. The doorbell <laughs> kept ringing and, you know, there was the conductor, Keith Lockhart, and it, you know, I pictured the Boston Symphony or the Boston Pops at your door, but the four of you singing show tunes for hours after that just speaks volumes. Well, you know, I would say that in the company of Brian Stokes Mitchell, <laughs> one of the guests, I, as much as possible, let him do the singing. But uh, I think at Ted's funeral, I told a truth with, which Vicky knew, which is that Brian Stokes Mitchell is what Ted thought he sounded like <laughs> when he was singing. Never mind. <laughs> My father was a musician. Yes, he played with Herbie Hancock. He did. He was, a, he was a jazz musician. He was one of the founding 
members of the Sun Ra Orchestra, which is a very avant-garde uh, group. He played with them in Chicago and New York and around the world for 30 years or so. But he played with just about everyone. When we were collecting his papers after he died, there were... Um, handwritten notes from Duke Ellington on his scores when he played with Ellington, which was among other things we donated to the Berkeley School of Music in, in Boston. A recent episode of your podcast features the ballerina Misty Copeland. This was riveting. She was the first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer for American Ballet Theater. What struck you most about her rise to success? Her bravery, I think. It's obvious, I suppose, to, to anyone who is interested in dance that her skill is extraordinary. Her grace combined with her athleticism. She is a show-stopping talent and so much fun. And there's so much joy that she exudes when you're sitting in the audience watching her perform, which I've had an opportunity to, to do maybe twice in my, uh, in my life. But it's not until you really appreciate how much, uh, not just how much work goes into becoming a principal, but how staked the odds are against you if you are Black, particularly in classical ballet, not all dance, but classical ballet. And Ms. Copeland talks about this in the podcast, you know, what constitutes a body type for classical ba ballet and who gets to say and why and the presumptions against you. And of course, then she started, I think, in her teens. Yeah, she said she didn't start till she was 13. Right, right. And here's something that I don't think we touched on the podcast, but she was on point three months after starting her uh, ballet lessons. It takes years for most trained dancers to uh, go up on point. Three months. It's extraordinary. She surely was a prodigy. I loved in that episode where you mentioned the governor, Doug Wilder, introducing you as the first African-American governor of Massachusetts. And he said, you quote him saying, being first doesn't mean a thing unless there's a second. And the pressure that was on Misty Copeland for being the first to achieve what she has as prima ballerina, you'd think would be burdensome. But in your conversation, she carries it off with, the same grace she shows on stage. That, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear you say that came through. I, I think um, she was very clear about the pressure she was under or the high expectations she had, or it, actually a combination of high expectations of herself by herself and low expectations around her, that there were limits on the expectations other had, others had that she would have to surmount. But I think there was a, a part of her conversation, where, of that conversation, where she talked about the aftermath within the company of the George Floyd videotaped killing and how intimate and supportive 
she discovered in some ways her colleagues were of her. So it was, a, I think, in some ways an auspicious time to be having that kind of conversation with her about her rise to this height. I loved that what came out of that conversation also was how being a good observer served her so beautifully, although the way she told it, she was so painfully shy. People thought she was mute. Mm, how about that? How about that? But, you know, this is a, an inartful thing to say to a radio host, but I, th- I think to myself sometimes, how rich is our experience when we stop talking and just listen? Listen in the conversations that we're having with each other, but also just listening to others interact. Just what you learn, how you, um, it's not all content. Some of it is tone and touch. Some of it is grace and meanness. But you learn things about human interaction, which I think make life richer. And I think that's what Misty was trying to get across. You talk about finding common values during uncommon times when you open the podcast. Do you have hope for that in our society as it is now? Well, look, we, we, uh, I have to have hope because what we have right now is not sustainable. And I, I, I have hope not just um, for, you know, not just because I'm an optimistic person, Lois, but because I've had lots and lots of reasons given me over time and experiences to be hopeful. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid from, the, from welfare on the south side of Chicago, and I've, I've had extraordinary opportunities. I am also aware that for, you know, every kid like me who got a scholarship to college and, you know, got to travel and, and work in so many different settings with so many different sorts of people that there are dozens just like me, just as ambitious, just as creative, um, just as determined who don't. And as I said, I think there is so much work yet to do, but it is not true that we have been standing still since our founding. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges in this country is to, is to acknowledge imbalance, the extraordinary progress we have made, much of it in my lifetime, and at the same time, how much progress remains um, before us. You know, if you think about it, to me, you know, the fact that we are as divided is less troubling to me in some ways than the fact that it's so easy to divide us. And I think the reason it's easy to divide us is that we don't know each other. We don't have much more in most cases, many cases, than the cartoon version we get of each other in the media or social media or what have you. And uh, frankly, as a footnote, it's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about the importance of universal national service, domestic or military. We need ways for people to be together and work together and know each other past the one dimension. Yeah, you bring that out in the episode so far. A recurring theme is the importance of community. And and you've talked about growing up in a multi-generational household, on a block where kids played outside and everyone looked out for each other. How do we find community now? 
you know, the community we need isn't, it may be informed by past experience, but as I think about it, it's not about nostalgia, which is to say the the lesson from the from the South Side that I got from the old ladies in hats in church and the folks on the stoop who who treated you like you were theirs is that, um, well, two, two lessons really. One is that community is understanding you have a stake in your neighbor's dreams and struggles just as they do in yours. And that um, secondly, it's up to you, all of you, all of us, to do what we can in our time to leave things better for those who came behind us. Those are ancient lessons. Every single one of us learned those from our grandparents. But somehow or other, we, we sort of bleached them out, made them off limits in our politics, in our commerce. And I think in lots of ways, these questions are being put again and behaviors are being changed in politics and in business, trying to be a part of that change. I was wondering, as you ask each of your guests, what does it mean to be American? Is it chutzpah on my part to ask you, Governor Patrick? <laughs> no, it's not. I, I, look, I think being American is about aspiration. I think it's about being able to imagine a different place for yourself and your family and then reach for it. And I think that if that is what being American is, and it has been for me and for others, and it is not for enough others, then we have to ask each other, what does our patriotism demand of us, our citizenship demand of us to assure that that is, in fact, the reality for for everyone everywhere? And I think that raises a whole bunch of other really big questions. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, his podcast, Being American, can be found on many streaming platforms. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.